Welcome to the 360T Podcast, a series that features top industry professionals offering unique insights regarding how the FX market is developing around us. Hello, and welcome to the 360T Podcast with myself, Galen Stops. And I'm very excited today to be joined by a true expert of the currency markets, as I have on the podcast, Adrian Lee, the president and CIO of Adrian Lee & Partners which is a leading currency manager for institutional investors with over 17 billion in assets under management. Adrian, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure, Gail. Thank you for asking. So I have a lot I wanted to ask you. So I figured that we could start off with the high-level stuff and slowly drill down into that as we go. To kick us off, I guess (laughs) there's a lot going on in the world right now and in financial markets. The Fed is trying to navigate this fabled soft landing. Britain is still somehow grappling with Brexit, which has downed a number of prime ministers. Europe struggling with the fallout of the war in Ukraine and energy crisis. We have China in the process of reopening to the world. And now it seems we have a banking, I don't know, crisis, wobble, issue, something, right? It seems like everywhere you look, there's just geopolitical and macroeconomic trends playing out that could impact the currency markets. From the 10,000 foot view, What are the key things that you're watching out for as you think about potential FX moves that we might see going forwards? You correctly lay out all the things we're grappling with, but kind of the fundamental driving force that we're all grappling with in different ways here is inflation. It's the big issue, and it's the global issue. It's not again a US-only issue or a European-only issue. And it's been caused over many years since the global financial crisis by easy monetary policy, fiscal policy that has been very lax. And then COVID, you know, more spending. We've got deglobalization, which is actually causing dislocation of production cycles. And then you've got the green pressure that makes things even more inefficient. So this inflation is the big issue. And central banks reacting to that have raised rates extraordinarily quickly, 5% in, in a year, in an environment, in a marketplace where people who are exposed to this haven't seen this before. The last time we saw anything like that was back in the 80s. So that's causing the unheard of sort of pressure. There's an inevitable recession. Unemployment needs to go up. And there'll be bankruptcies along the way. And that's kind of put stocks on the back foot. Bonds maybe on the back foot too as rates go up and sort of cash becomes king in that environment. From a currency perspective, it's kind of in a, in a weird way less complicated because these are trends across all markets simultaneously. And currency doesn't like inflation, as, as you know. So all countries are dealing with inflation. I guess the cycle of how we go through that is what's driving currency markets. So for the last year or so, we've had Fed tightening earlier than everybody else. That's been good for the dollar, so buy the dollar. When that seems to be coming to an end, which is apparently about now, then markets will breathe a sigh of relief, and that's the time to buy risk and and go short of the dollar. So we're trying to judge where we are in this macroeconomic deleveraging cycle, but it's, it's actually much longer than I think the people think it is, and there's more to be done. You know, we're all surprised about the banking problem and the Fed have fixed that, but they still got to tighten to grapple with inflation. There'll be bankruptcies, there'll be unemployment, but we haven't even seen the recession that we need. So we're trying to judge that and how it impacts all economies, but in particular the US dollar. One of the interesting things there is we're sort of talking both economic and geopolitical factors here. So I would be intrigued to hear your thoughts on which you see being a bigger driver of markets this year, because from my own perspective, I feel like in the past, the emphasis is heavily weighted on economic policies. You know, geopolitical events might happen. You might see a, a brief change in the currency markets or the impact would flicker through the currency markets. 
And then things would stabilize. And it was really things like interest rates or long-term policies that impacted the currency markets. But do you think this has changed in 2023? Is it still economic policies or does geopolitics have a bigger role to play now? We get this question all the time from our clients. And, and, uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> and the reason for the question is a very valid reason, is that as soon as something changes, be it uh, geopolitical or political, political, it shows up instantaneously in the currency markets because it's the easiest market to actually put a position on. And it's the simplest way to play things, as you say. So that's the short-term effect. The longer-term effect, I think, as you correctly say, is actually, in the end, fundamentals really drive everything. It's very hard to get around that. No matter how long you're at war or how long you're under pressure to do certain things, the price and demand for goods and services always dominates that equation. That's our belief. And, and I think but sometimes it takes a little longer to show up than one would think. You know, a good example would be the invasion of Ukraine. Russian ruble, you know, depreciated 30, 40, 50% in a week. And two months later, it was back to where it started from, for better or for worse. Because in the end, the supply and demand, you can't get around that. It, it takes no hostages, so to speak. <laughs> So in the end, we think it's, it's always the fundamentals that went out, but you have to be kind of patient and not insensitive. I mean, another thing on that front that it always reminds me of this is that we have clients who come and visit us from London and they have many managers in London and they say to us, maybe they're just being kind. They say, always come and visit the currency managers first because they've got their fingers on the pulse of all stuff, stocks, bonds, cash, and politics. Um, then they go off and see their bond manager and then their <laughs> stock manager. But I think currencies are a barometer, but only short term, really. Currency itself is driven by the other fundamentals, demand for goods and assets that really you know, can't get around. You don't want a currency for its own sake. You want it because behind it is something you need. So that those demands continue. I rattled off a list of potential risk factors that have been making headlines. But these are sort of the common ones that I would say are fairly well understood and people are aware of. My question for you is, do you think that there's any issues or risk factors in the market right now? that aren't properly being priced in. Absolutely. And I think that's what we're all kind of grappling with. The fact is we can't actually see them, but we know they must be there. It's inevitable that as you raise rates so quickly, every company, every person, every you know, individual is grappling with inflation because they don't like inflation and what to do with the rest is. And then interest rates, because that's going to be a bigger expense, whether it be corporate or personal. So we're not sure where that's going to show up. I mean, inevitably, you know, we all know as profits go down, corporations, unemployment goes up. That's the kind of the traditional big macroeconomic ones. But the special ones, I guess, to some extent, we've seen the pressures on banks. We were also a bit surprised by that because they are extremely well capitalized, but not all of them. And there's a, an industry of banks across the United States ranging from you know, very well capitalized to less well structured. And the SBB bank situation that we've had to deal with recently was a surprise to the market, but that it shows up there. But it's inevitable. I mean, they're, they're a company like any other company. So whether it's a bankruptcy in a bank or in a real estate development company or in a company company, these have got to keep going. So we can't see them, but we know they must happen. I think the unknown one is that we think we're nearly there and the market's pricing in cutting rates next year. We're actually there. Our sense is that it's going to take much longer. It's going to take two years to get inflation back to where it is. And the Fed and other central banks are not going to take their foot off the brake in this front. So they're unknown, but maybe, I mean, if you want to think of the Armageddon, the intersection of supply side problems and financial problems. So imagine sort of a, a microchip company in Taiwan goes under for financial reasons. That could knock on to Apple and everybody else. So it's the interaction of those things. I think it's very hard for investors to sort of see, but you'll know it when it happens. And of course, we always have the unknown risks, which, well, they're not unknown, but they're kind of random risks of the politics. You know, the China-Taiwan problem and the interaction between China and Russia is very interesting. And that hasn't really come to rest yet. So 
currency markets are always where political angst shows up first. Something goes wrong, it's the dollar goes up. It's the knee-jerk reaction to everything. It's not necessarily the solution. So one always has to be sensitive to those tensions. I would say sort of the biggest story in the FX market last year was probably the return of volatility. And by that, I mean the return of sustained volatility. We saw in 2020 and and other years, you know, you would have something happen, spreads would widen, there would be a burst of volatility, but the market would come back very quickly. I think last year was the first year in some time where we've seen an extended period of volatility in FX. Do you think the conditions are in place for us to continue having volatility in the FX market? I think so at that level. I think that as we discussed, the three things that are issues of the past are coming to have to be undone, GFC, interest rates, COVID, inflation. And I think those things are not removed with one change of Fed policy or hike in interest rates. So it's that gradual of dealing with this is showing up in currencies. And currencies are driven by many things, but one of the obvious ones is inflation. So inflation is the issue that we're grappling with, and that's driving currency markets. Negative inflation is obviously bad for currency. And I think that the risks of how people grapple with those, we're altering the course of a ship that's been going west for so long, and now it's got to go back east. It takes a long time to move that around, and that'll take years, I think, not quarters. I want to start linking this back to you and what you do. Obviously, we've seen, as discussed, more volatility in FX. As an active currency manager, how do you go about delivering benefits for investors in this more volatile currency market environment? We've not changed things in, in a long, long time. Our approach is quant research driven. We found things that add alpha in currency markets, and we have a discretionary component that navigates us around that more simplistic quantitative approach. There's a lot of breadth to it. We kind of stick to it. I mean, that's going to sound really simple. We're not gurus. We can add alpha. We can manage risk, but we're not trying to uh, totally shoot the lights out and get the implications of a geopolitical event completely right. What we're trying to do is not get whipsawed. We value signals that make sense in currency markets. It's all about expectations. I mean, if someone wants to always be hedged, the currency is going down, that's very hard to do. The value of that option is huge. So we just stick with what we've always done is to add alpha in a reasonable way and then control risk, which is relatively straightforward to do if a client asks that. I'm intrigued about some of the conversations you're having now with investors, because I think when FX volatility was low, it was perhaps easier for a lot of investors to spend less time thinking about the best ways to effectively hedge and manage their currency exposures. Obviously, markets start moving, people start suffering losses, that tends to sharpen the minds on occasion. So have you seen attitudes amongst investors change with regards to currency management over the past year? Absolutely. As you say, Gil, we talk about currency volatility, but it's actually currency loss is the issue. <laughs> when people lose money, they, they call it volatility, but it's actually just capital loss. And uh, certainly as the dollar has strengthened in line with the Fed policy, which is relatively straightforward for investors to have anticipated and uh, expect. Um, yes, a lot of our largest client base is U.S. institutional investors putting their money overseas. Um, and our, we're helping them manage that currency exposure. So as the dollar has gone up, those portfolios have been losing money. And there's been a huge interest from the U.S., Maybe we should do something here rather than just watch the depreciation of our foreign currency portfolios. There's no simple answer to it. No one's that smart to always get it right. <laughs> Having someone to, uh, to talk to about it is really helpful. So we've seen a huge interest from the US in terms of talking to people like ourselves who are crafted with managing risk and adding return in foreign currencies from, from their perspective. Also from the Australian perspective, their international portfolios are, as a percent of their portfolios, are much bigger. They would have 50% of their portfolio internationally invested. Why is that? At a simple level, because the Australian market is a small market and you need to globally diversify 
And as a percent of the world, Australia is a smaller amount. So when you go to those kind of cap weights, you can't really justify having a sort of 5% allocation to the rest of the world when it's 55% of the whole universe. So <laughs> it's a little bit of that. And I think also that the Australian market is a very, and a market as currency is a very unique space because firstly, it's an exporting economy for commodities. So when growth is strong globally, their currency goes up, which means their foreign portfolios go down. So they have a very perverse diversification rate. As, as their port portfolios go up, their currencies will, will go down. So they have a built-in, if you will, diversification, which they always grapple with. But what's been going on recently as US rates have been going up and their own rates have been going up, those interest rate differentials have widened a little bit. So the cost of their hedges are actually higher and emerging markets currencies, which they wouldn't hedge, those interest rates have gone up. So they're getting more and more kind of worried about the cost of hedging. So they would be kind of keen to sort of maybe reduce their hedges in a perverse way. So that's just, if you will, the change of monetary policy affecting both the US and Australia. You know, we could mirror those effects in every economy. Sterling would have its own issues to deal with. So, we've, you know, with a big fall in sterling has created a, quite an interest in the UK investors thinking about, well, when that currency comes back, maybe I should be more sensitive to hedging back because it won't always go down. So, um, We've seen quite a lot of interest globally because as monetary policy is changing and the directions of economies are changing, currencies have the knock-on effect. I want to sort of press you on this point a little bit. Why should institutional investors consider having a specialist currency manager? I've almost heard in the past two ends of the spectrum where there's some people who say, you know what, I'm not a currency specialist. Over time, things average out. I'm just going to leave it alone. And then there's the other end where they say, I don't want to have to pay someone to manage or do anything with my currencies for me. So what is the case sort of against those, I guess? <laughs> um, I kind of, it's a conceptual case as much as anything else. You know, when we bring our client base back to 101, international diversification is clearly a wise thing to do. We've been doing it for 50 years and everybody agrees, don't put all your equity or fixed income assets in your domestic economy. So buy your foreign assets. Great idea. But the unfortunate reality of attaching to buy a foreign asset is if I actually call up a broker and say, I want to buy five Hitachi, you know, it's a Japanese security. They'll say, how many shares do you want? And you say, okay, I want 10 shares. That will immediately be priced in yen. And that immediately and say, I'm buying 10 shares means I've bought a certain amount of yen. That conversation is actually a currency decision and an asset decision in that same comment. So that second currency decision really is made by equity managers globally, and they have to do that. But you can remove that and you can separate that using forward contracts. So the conceptual light bulb that needs to go off in a client's head as to why you'd want a currency manager is you realize that you've got into these very big currency positions that are as big as your international investment. It could be 30, 40% of your portfolio for the wrong reasons. It's kind of become a hidden investment because the equity guy decided he wanted to buy Hitachi, which is great and, and that's fine, but he didn't necessarily want to buy the yen. Yeah. And the most powerful way to get this message across to clients is say, well, ask your equity manager, what does he think about currencies? And he'll probably say, well, that's not my problem. I kind of <laughs> part of the game. Yeah. And once he says it's part of the game, then it's the client's problem. So the kind of the conceptually having a currency manager in place is someone who will uniquely take responsibility for that dimension of risk and return that's there. And to simply say, well, it'll wash out in the long run, which you know has kind of some theoretical foundation is a bit too simple. But a lot of people take that position. Because I don't know what to do with it. But the main thing is once you realize you've got into this exposure and there are people who specialize in helping control that risk and adding return around it, it's an obvious bias, so to speak. And, and it's not the most expensive. It is an extra fee, but it's not nearly as expensive as equity or fixed income investing can be. 
Yeah, the number of times in the course of my career where I've seen people spend hours and resources and time and effort coming up with this equity trade, only to then give away double-digit performance on the FX side, dragging it back, which to my mind, as someone who's been focused on currencies, seems somewhat bizarre at times. The reason is for an equity manager, it's in their index. So they kind of say, well, you know, it's kind of your problem. And I guess our biggest advertisement as a currency specialist would be the equity managers. because, And we encourage our clients to call the equity managers, ask them, what are you doing on currencies? And say, no, we're doing nothing. We just buy it because we have to buy it. But from a client's perspective, it's kind of tricky to kind of raise up this issue, say, well, this is kind of new, this is or it's different. The standard approach is, well, currencies are part of international investment. I'll let the equity guy worry about it. You know, if he moves it around, he moves it around. And it's a problem that's kind of embedded that you don't have to sort of raise with your board. But if you logically think it out, you kind of need to raise it with your board because in the end, the investor itself is taking the hit because the equity person won't buy the dollar or cross edge to reduce currency exposures. Agreed. So let's talk specifically about what you do. Adrian Lee and Partners offers a range of different solutions aimed at reducing currency risks and enhancing portfolio returns. I had a little poke around the website at the different approaches that you use. I saw phrases, fundamental dynamic hedging, selective hedging, asymmetric hedging, pure active on unhedged benchmarks. Can you just at a high level, we don't have to get into the weeds here, but could you walk me through some of the differences in the approaches you take to currency management? Sure. I'll ask you, see if I can try and get rid of the jargon because those websites <laughs> are full of jargon. Um, but it is much simpler, I think, and uh, hopefully in practice. So firstly, to reduce risk is really simple. You just hedge the currency exposure you see and sell it for the base currency and use a forward contract to do that with a bank. And that all works fine. So that's something that one can't charge very much for. You want to do it carefully with right counterparties and stuff. So risk control is simple. We can do that for any client. The next question is, well, do they want to be smarter than that and try and hedge more when one has a view that markets are going down or hedge less when they have a view that markets are going up? Because the first option doesn't think about the future. It just does it because we want to reduce that risk full stop. So there's variations on the theme of how much of that you want to do. That The simplest way would be say, well, if, if we think the dollar is going up, then we should, instead of hedging, let's say starting point is 50%. The client says, okay, I'm going to reduce my currency risk 50%. And that's kind of my strategic decision. An active manager can say, well, look, let's do a little bit more hedging when we think the dollar is going up, a little less hedging when it's going down. And in that deviation around that starting position, you can actually make a bit of money and soften the cash flows attached to the hedge. So it's, it's a good thing to do if you can do it right. So the first thing, fundamental dynamic hedging, that's kind of just go take a 50% hedge to 60 or 50 down to 40 and the same hedge ratio on all currencies. So you're hedging the yen, the euro, sterling, Australian dollar, that extra 10%. So you're thinking of the currency as a basket. That's kind of naive because they're not all the same. They don't all move the same way at the same time. Selective hedging says, well, I can now do the same thing, but on currency by currency. So I can overhedge the Australian dollar and underhedge the euros from a US perspective or the base currency perspective. So that's the kind of selective bit. You're selecting the currency. Selection where it comes into it is because the client is giving you their portfolio and they're indirectly selecting your universe. Because if there's no Norway and there's no Swiss franc, then you can't do that. So that's where the word selective comes from. But it's a currency by currency approach. All of this mirrors clients' attitudes towards trying to do something they think is sensible and not speculative. That's where all this jargon comes from. If you can get over that sort of speculation concern, which we can't be uh, insensitive to that, then you can just do pure alpha, which is go long or short currencies, irrespective of what's in the portfolio and what the client's portfolio is. And that's pure alpha. But asymmetric is an interesting one, is, is a lot of clients realize they've got foreign currency exposures. They don't have the domestic currency exposure in that portfolio. 
they let you buy the domestic currency, but not sell it. So that's the asymmetry. Okay. But kind of long story short, it's all about clients. If you were packaging our skills in a way that makes sense to their board and themselves intuitively, that seems like a wise thing to do without being speculative. So let's build on that. How do investors determine which of these approaches is best for them? And I understand this comes with the caveat that it will depend on the type of firm, their objectives, their portfolio, et cetera. What I'm trying to get is, how would you advise these types of investors to be thinking about approaching the subject of currency management and the best way forward for them? I think all our clients trust us well on kind of guiding them down this direction of how to structure a currency program. I guess the first thing one would do is do a lot of research. Let's say you're doing selective hedging and, and you're trying to add 1% return and, and, and reduce risk. A lot of research can be done to show the impact of this on the total portfolio, your international portfolio and your domestic portfolio, and how it is a good thing or a bad thing from a total perspective. So a lot of, if you will, simulation and research. Also, I guess from our perspective, we'd ask clients to give us much flexibility, both in terms of the universe of currencies they'd use and in terms of the symmetry of longs or shorts. Symmetry is quite important if you're trying to add alpha, but that may be not something they want to do. That's the second part of the equation. And the third one is really ask other investors, you know, look at what's this institutional investor doing? What's that one doing? A lot of clients don't really want to do anything that's totally different from everybody else because there's, <laughs> there's career risk to yeah. that. So, you know, references and talking it from others' perspective. And then we all have to be sensitive to our bosses, our boards. So I think that's all, you know, a good steer in terms of what can be done and what not be done. We spend, I'd say on average, from the beginning of a conversation to funding a currency account will be 18 months. Okay. That's education, a- research. It's a long time. They're long-term investors. They want to put something in place that makes sense and can be rationalized and won't just disappear when something changes sort of fundamentally. The last question I wanted to put to you, Adrian, is why do you advocate active over passive currency hedging? And do market conditions have an impact on the effectiveness of each? And you've talked about how you've been doing this for a long time, and obviously you've built up a, a track record of success. Is it easier to be successful in, in certain market conditions, or is that actually kind of irrelevant to what you do? A really good question. And we're often asked that, are the conditions for adding alpha or, or managing currencies changing over time? And, and when you've been doing something for quite a while, people say, well, it must have changed. How could you? <laughs> how do you adapt? How does evolution happen? And you have to adapt. You have to be wise and confident. But I think the reality of fundamentals haven't changed, and I don't think they will change in another 20 years. You know, we've been through currency wars. We've been through euro existence and convergence of currencies. I would take a reasonable bet that so long as different economies are independent political, if you will, entities, like Japan has its own monetary policy, the Fed has its own monetary policy, so does the UK, so does Europe, so does Australia. Those democracies and economies, they will do things that suit themselves. So unless there was total convergence of those fundamentals and currencies will always be going up and going down. That's going to sound very simple, but it's as powerful as that. Certainly when the euro came into existence, people were saying, oh, doesn't currency management just disappear now because yeah. all the currency is the same? Yeah, the peseta and the lira disappear, but uh, there was still, um, you know. So that's important. That sort of structural diversity globally will not go away. We think globalization is taking a kind of a breather, but I don't think that's necessarily going to affect currency markets significantly. But we advocate active management because it's a perversely inefficient asset class. The non-hypothesis, well, currency is very liquid. Everybody's trading it. How can anybody make money? But actually, if you landed from Mars and looked at the kind of economic conditions for an efficient market, many buyers, many sellers, common information set, common objective functions, antitrust law, put all that stuff in place, it really doesn't exist in the currency markets. You know, lumpy buyers and sellers, 
no one really agrees what drives currency markets. You don't, have, you don't have common information sets. And you have what I call the cultural barrier to entry. No one really thinks it's natural to go in and manage a currency actively. So it's actually a very inefficient asset class. So it's an opportunity for people to capture more alphas better than no alpha. So that's why we'd always advocate active management. And you have to be sensitive to the horizon. No one's going to make money every day or every quarter. But I think long-term investors sticking with good long-term strategies can add alpha significantly. And I think maybe it's going to sound a little bit sort of soft, but it's an honest approach towards managing things. You are trying. And I wouldn't want to put my hand up and say, well, you know, in this currency, because it's in the index. And um, <laughs> that's great. You know, it fell 50%. So... That's why we would advocate it, but many clients are happy just with risk management, which we do too. So we wouldn't push it too hard. Both are important. Well, I think that's a great note to end it on. There's still lots of life in the currency markets yet and uh, lots of inefficiencies to exploit and leverage. Adrian, thank you so much for joining me. That was a really fascinating chat. Hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, please do join us again next time. Thank you for listening to the 360T podcast. Check the 360T website to catch up on past episodes and find new listings.